Football is back, and right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day, and with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hi there, thanks for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, a pleasure to be back with you, a pleasure to talk about some Premier League football as well. A number of major football leagues returned to action last weekend. Michael Cox is with me to try and offer some first impressions to start edging towards some conclusions albeit understanding that it's only been a few games so far a very small sample size but to start edging towards some thoughts and conclusions on on the various questions that were being posed before the restart surrounding such topics as home advantage playing behind closed doors in front of no fans uh, extra substitutions and anything else that feels new and unusual firstly how are you Michael did you enjoy the return of the Premier League very well thank you Ali and yeah it was great to have the Premier League back I thought there was a couple of quite fun games I think Tottenham Manchester United in particular on uh, on the Friday night was probably the standout um, I guess the one we were most looking forward to from that set of fixtures and I think probably the best game some games that did feel a little bit flat the Merseyside derby I think was a pretty poor game and while people will say Merseyside derbies often aren't particularly entertaining I think they're usually not entertaining because they're fast and frantic and you know there's there's lots of tackles and maybe not much technical quality whereas I thought this game was you know predictably quite slow Everton dropping deep without you know the fans roaring them on so yeah some things were a little bit different but overall I thought it was a decent weekend of action I mean the Premier League is a division with very strong teams at the top of it and it, it strikes me that even pre-lockdown, a lot of matches follow a similar-ish template when you've got a team, let's say, in the big six or in the top six or eight teams playing against a team down the bottom. I suppose the Premier League wouldn't like me saying it, but sometimes it can feel a little bit like attack v defence at times. And it, it, it certainly felt heightened to me this weekend when you had a game, for example, uh, Manchester City against Burnley or even that Chelsea-Aston Villa game, albeit Villa took an unlikely lead in that game. It does feel like those are the games that are slightly tougher to watch almost when they're being played behind closed doors were there any games that you watched and thought this is really struggling thanks to a lack of of fans in particular yeah I agree with you on the City Burnley game I mean that didn't really have any tension at all and I think part of that was the empty stands I I tend to think the games where there's some meaning and there's something to be played is still going to be quite good and quite competitive but Mm. I think it's those games where you know there's not that much at stake I think they can drift away pretty easily and and in fairness 
you know, even if there were fans, I'm not sure that a City Burnley game would have been particularly entertaining, both because of the, you know, the, the difference in styles, the difference in quality, but also the fact that City are almost assured of second place. They're not going to finish first or third. I can't see that happening. Burnley are not going to qualify for Europe and not going to go down. So I guess we've got to accept that, you know, usually there's there's not 10 games televised and, and usually five of those mm-hmm. would be Saturday 3pm and we wouldn't be commenting on them being boring. So we will get some of that for the rest of the season, I think. Very fair point. I mean, there were some uh, some important results across the division and after our first impressions, we're going to take a look at a few of the teams that came out the blocks quickly and please their fans with strong performances and good wins. The, the hows, whys and whos of big wins for Brighton, Crystal Palace, Newcastle and Southampton. And we're going to talk about all of those. But let's just start by this segment that I'm calling First Impressions. Uh, no fans was a big concern for people beforehand. And, and specifically, partly how it would feel almost from a sentimental, like kind of a, an emotional, intangible position, but also how it would affect the quality and intensity of the football. Um, have you got anything to add about the lack of fans that we didn't just touch on uh, previously? Any differences that you noticed uh, in in how a football match looks and feels because it's being played behind closed doors. Yeah, I mean, as as we've spoken about uh, yesterday, I went to Brentford, Fulham or Fulham Brentford, I should say, at Craven Cottage on on Saturday early afternoon, and uh, of course that was usually that would be a derby game, quite a passionate derby game. It's become in in West London over the past couple of years, and the thing I noticed there was the frequency with which opposition players were basically joking around with each other. There was quite a a friendly vibe. It all felt quite jovial, almost like a county cricket game or something. Um, (laughs) And I I just, I don't think we'd have seen that with fans. I think there would be more of a passionate atmosphere. I think the players would have been getting stuck in more. I can't recall a single bad tackle that we saw in any of the Premier League games or, or any of the football that I watched this weekend. There hasn't been the kind of crowding around refs um, it does feel a little bit more relaxed and, and certainly, you know, my initial impressions are that players have more time on the ball and there's there's less kind mm. of 50-50 tackles and it does feel a little bit pedestrian at times. So, yeah, I do think there has been a different vibe. I mean, not all of the players uh, on opposition teams were getting on this weekend and, and more on one of them later on. Uh, just a quick non-serious question but I think an important one for the listeners uh, and for me to know are you a crowd noise switched on or crowd noise switched off man when watching the games on the TV uh, I'm very much no fake crowd noise I'm really I'm just yeah I just want to hear what's absolutely you know what's actually happening in the grounds and I know some people have said they really like the fake crowd noise and I get how it can improve the experience but Maybe it's just me, but sometimes just the pitch of the crowd noise for certain incidents is completely different to how it should be. <laughs> and it just, I find that more frustrating than I do, uh, you know, when it gets it right, I find, uh, yeah, I'm not sure it necessarily is a better experience. I've been an on rather than an off man. So we're, we're the, the good thing about us doing this podcast is that we're catering to, to all listeners on, <laughs> on both sides of the spectrum. You know what? You know one thing about me, Michael, I hate bad language. And if there's one thing that you get when you're uh, listening with the crowd noise off, it's a constant reminder that you're listening to uh, professional sports people and managers and management teams uh, using using foul language. Um, I, that has been a, a quite a funny feature of those games without uh, crowd noise. I must say the constant need to to apologise. But such is life for, for broadcasters, I suppose. They have to do it. Um, a big, big narrative that came from the Bundesliga's early restart. There was a lot of eyes on the Bundesliga and something that appeared to 
take place in the Bundesliga was that home advantage, as as is accepted when there are fans there, seemed to take a bit of a hit. Um, only 12 Premier League games before we recorded this podcast, but any thoughts on a lack of home advantage or a reduction in home advantage in the Premier League? Yeah, I mean, only 12 games, like you say. So far, we've had four home wins, four draws and four away wins. So based upon that, home advantage gone completely. Uh, obviously, <laughs> a very small sample size and it's dependent upon the type of fixtures. Some of them would be the away side would have been favourites anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've seen the, from the Bundesliga, there has been quite a defined, clear shift away from that level of home advantage. I can't really see why that wouldn't be the case uh, in the Premier League to a certain extent, whether the uh, the current stats will continue uh, on that uh, trajectory. You have to say that uh, that's not something you can judge from 12 games. But yeah, certainly so far, we haven't necessarily seen home sides winning. Only two home wins out of 12 games in the Championship uh, last weekend as well. And potentially notably at that level anyway, seven of the eight winning teams beat teams above them in the table. Now, uh, in the Championship, I mean, it has its own cliche, which is that anyone can beat anyone. Uh, And of course, the gaps in quality between teams are uh, much smaller than they can be at Premier League level. But that that was certainly interesting. You know, it wasn't necessarily a case of the stronger teams from pre-coronavirus were just naturally back in the rhythm uh, compared to those teams down at the bottom. And and, and again, that may not have such a big impact in the Premier League. What about the extra substitutions? Five subs teams can make now in the Premier League. Uh, What impact do you think that had based on opening or reopening weekend, I should probably call it? Anything you'd consider innovative or surprising or plain stupid yeah i mean there's there's been quite a variety of approaches i mean ali i'm going to ask you this as a little quiz question so there's been 12 matches 12 (laughs) matches so 24 teams have been competing in those matches how many of those teams all five subs out of 24 out of the 24 teams i think that uh 17 teams made all five subs. That's interesting. It's only been 11. And I must say, I didn't think it would be as many as 11. I thought most managers would maybe stick to three subs, maybe go to four. But there's been quite a lot of managers who have used the five. I mean, I think the most interesting example has been the... Uh, Tottenham against Manchester United game on Friday night because that was the biggest difference in approaches between two managers. Uh, Jose Mourinho is the only manager to so far have have used less than three subs. He only changed two players, just basically swapped two attacking midfielders for two other attacking midfielders to freshen up the sides. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer made five changes and two of those changes I think really contributed to changing the tactical picture, bringing on Paul Pogba, mm. of course, who who won the penalty for the first goal. And I thought Nemanja Matic actually was a was quite a important introduction as well in terms of someone who could sit behind Pogba and, and Fernandes and I think really allowed them to dominate the final 20 minutes of that game. With Tottenham, I thought were really passive. I thought Mourinho should have made a substitution to probably put Son up front and just give some pace going in behind, particularly up against Harry Maguire, who who clearly struggled with speed in the first half. But it felt to me like Tottenham just invited the pressure. And yeah, it was slightly surprising. Mourinho only elected to use two changes when he could have made three more. <laughs> I found it interesting. There appeared to be something of a trade-off in the first games back where you could understand why the break and the lack of, of so-called match fitness would would hinder the players as the match went on and therefore having extra substitutions and therefore fresher legs or more of them would be a bonus. But we certainly saw with a fair few substitute appearances, I don't want to pick on anyone, but Reese James certainly coming on for Chelsea at the end of that game, that 
you forget they haven't played properly for three months or so and it takes time to actually get into the rhythm of things as well so that's kind of an interesting trade-off you want the fresh legs but you can't really afford players to take 10 20 minutes to get going if they're coming on after an hour or 70 minutes um what about the extra breaks that have been inserted sort of halfway between each half it feels like it's it's almost an nba game now with with four quarters did that have any impact that you saw yeah to go back to that Fulham Brentford game that for me was a really clear example of how it happened I mean it felt to me like uh, Fulham dominated the first quarter Brentford had the next two and then Fulham in the last stages so it was yeah it seemed to really kind of kill the momentum and, and slightly have a bit of a reset which I think you do get at half time that, that I think is quite a clear pattern in football so there's no reason it doesn't happen to a certain extent midway through the halves as well and yeah just from a general pattern of watching the, the Premier League game is not necessarily something you want to delve into the stats for but it does feel like there have been a, a real shift in or, or a halt of momentum I would say when it's been you know 23 minutes 67 minutes and uh, the sides have had two minutes to to have a drink so yeah I think it has changed the game and I think it'll be necessary this week because of the temperatures um, mm. but it's something maybe that uh you know, we didn't necessarily need it the weekend, I felt. I tell you who was watching the water breaks with a keen eye. That was Eddie Jones, who's the England Rugby Union head coach. I don't think either of us are necessarily the biggest Rugby Union fans, but I bring it up because Eddie Jones, who, regardless of the sport in which he partakes, is a very interesting man and very innovative uh, as a coach. He actually watched the Brighton-Arsenal game with the Athletics uh, Stuart James and had some really interesting things to say uh, reacting to how teams were dealing with those breaks how they could deal with them better uh, and it's really worth a read it's a, it's a it's a brilliant sort of crossover piece I suppose really interesting concept and Stuart James as always smashing it out the park if you want to read that piece and, and all the stuff that Michael is churning out on a near daily basis at the moment then head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking it's a great way to support this podcast and also gain access to everything that the athletic site and app has to offer you'll get 40% off your annual subscription which makes it around three pounds a month so give the athletic a go uh, as you're listening to this or after you listen to this check out that piece uh, where Stuart James and Eddie Jones were very much in conversation uh, watching the Brighton Arsenal game Harry's sponsors the zonal marking podcast Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy Two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. And their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close comfortable shave that's a weighted ergonomic handle five precision engineered blades a rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover i've recently received a harry's trial set and it's fair to say it's changed my shaving life forever i feel fresh i look fresh in all honesty i look about 10 years old whether that's a good or a bad thing i'm not quite sure but as a listener of zonal marking you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash zonal marking right now. 
That's harrys.com slash zonal marking. Right, next we're going to delve into some of the more interesting individual matches that we saw played across the Premier League uh, this weekend and, and start to zoom in on, on some of the high performers post-lockdown. Uh, we're joined by Matt Woosnam, who is the Crystal Palace reporter for The Athletic. Thank you for, for joining us for the first time on this pod, Matt. Hello, how are you doing? We're doing very well. We want to know about Crystal Palace because uh, not only was it a historic match, the first ever Premier League game to be shown on the BBC, but Palace acquitted themselves well in front of millions of viewers on Saturday night. And yeah, first of all, I mean, they were quick out the blocks, Palace. They scored twice in the first 25 minutes of the game. Uh, was that a sort of pleasant surprise for you as someone who covers the team closely? Or, or are they generally quick out the traps? Is that something that's a recognisable feature of their game pre-lockdown, shall we say? No, it was definitely uh, a surprise. It's not something that they've actually achieved this season. Uh, they made a, a... They sort of, I guess, broke a few records um, against Bournemouth, obviously. As you mentioned, the first ever live Premier League game on the BBC. Um, the reverse fixture was the first ever live Premier League game on Amazon as well. Um, not really the, the game that you might choose, but I think it turned out okay in the end. But they the, they scored for inside 15 minutes of a game for the first time this season. So, you know, that, that was a very much a surprise. They played very expansively and, and quickly and slickly on the counter-attack to begin with. You know, they, they certainly haven't played like that most of the season, um, as is evidence by you know the fact that they haven't scored more than two goals I think in any game this season they did really well to begin with and then they reverted back to typical Palace typical Roy compact rigid solid you know deep defending really hard to break down um, and it worked perfectly I think Roy was very happy and Palace fans were very happy and rightly so it was a probably the, the best performance that, that they really could have expected yeah Jordan Ayew was was one of the early high performers uh, scoring the second goal and Michael he, he was playing on the right of a front three in, in Roy Hodgson's 4-3-3 um, how much do you like him playing off the right do you prefer him through the middle or are you, are you alright with him playing off the right to be honest I always thought of him as a player who was more at home on the flank that's where I remember him playing for, for Marseille sometimes at international level he played up front well, I didn't necessarily think of him as a centre-forward in a, in a kind of Roy Hodgson side, someone who, uh, to a certain extent, has to hold up the ball. But I've been really impressed by him in that number nine role this season. I think his his goal-scoring, but also his work without the ball. I think he's been really good at, at coming deep and linking play and even defensively keeping the side compact. So, yeah, I, I think it works quite well for Palace. They have, they have two quite different forwards they can use up front. Obviously, he's very different to Benteke. And yeah, certainly no issue with him playing from the from the flank. I think he showed in this game that... You know, obviously he can uh, he can use his speed out wide and also can get into the box and, and finish very well. So, yeah, I think it, it helps Palace to have a few different options tactically. Benteke is always a, a big source of intrigue, Matt, no doubt for Palace fans, but I think for neutrals as well. And it's, it's fair to say that he still hasn't found his shooting boots, just the one Premier League goal this season. But he does offer plenty in other parts of the game. I I'd love you to give us an idea of how and when... Roy Hodgson uses him. I, I note that he's started 10 games and he's come off the bench 11 games. So it, it's clear that Hodgson has specific roles for him in, in specific games. How would you describe that role? I think he's actually the first line of defence. Is almost as ridiculous as that might sound to, to the neutral or, or the casual observer. But he's there to win the ball. He's there to tidy up. He's there to 
you know, be that sort of focal point up front and sort of, I guess, harangue and harass defences. He's kind of adapted a, an almost new role, really. He's not, obviously, yes, Palace would love him to be scoring goals and that is really what you want from your striker, your centre forward. But when you've got, you know, Wilfred Saha, you've got Jordan Ayew. I mean, it hasn't been Wilfred Saha's finest season, um, certainly not going forward, but he's certainly done well to defensively and, and to fit into a more collective system. But, you know, with, with Benteke, it really is sort of primarily to to be that occupier of that space and of those two centre-backs and to bring other players into play to allow the likes of Wilfred Saha more space and more time on the ball to do what they do best. And and of course, Jordan Ayew as well, who isn't afraid to run at defences with the ball. Um, you know, I, I think they work quite nicely together. I I, you know, I actually prefer Jordan Ayew in the middle, personally. Um, yeah, I think he's more or less capable of playing all across the board. I mean, uh, but with, with Benteke, I mean, Dom Fifield wrote a piece um, sort of, I think, back in January about him and about sort of his new role. You know, obviously he signed a new contract and, and you know, when people were wondering whether or not Palace would be keeping him and, you know, he is one of the highest earners at the club, but he really kind of typifies Roy Hodgson's industrious nature. I think he really is there to, to win the ball, to win headers, to bring other people into play, to occupy the defence rather than necessarily to score goals. How much do the fan base sort of appreciate that? It's it's such a sticking point for strikers when they have, well, a, an issue like he has in terms of actually putting the ball in the net. But it sounds from what you're saying like there might be something of a, of a growing appreciation for, for that role that he has. And, you know, it's the sort of thing you could see being talked about constantly uh, and potentially really getting on top of a player and even hanging over a, a squad and a manager being this sort of huge talking point. Uh, have they kind of got past that with Benteke? I think so. I mean, confidence is, is obviously an important part in any player, um, particularly up front when you've gone from being one of the best in the division to not, scoring at all you know he came on as as a as a sub and I think it was one of his first games back maybe or or he'd you know, been on a really poor run of form and and the crowd just really really got behind him um, I think he stepped up to take a penalty and and it was the probably the loudest you'd heard Sellers for quite a long time and I think that kind of speaks to the way that Palisans have appreciated his effort and his work rate and I think, again, that's something that perhaps Palisans have appreciated more now that you know, Roy Hodgson's team isn't. You know, it would be a disservice to just to say that Roy Hodgson's team is simply industrious and hardworking. There are some talented players who are skillful and quick and enjoyable and exciting to watch, don't get me wrong. I mean, they beat Bournemouth 5-3 on the last day of last season. They've won four games in a row. You don't get that by simply just being industrious on its own. Um, but obviously that is the core of the system. But no, I think Palisans do appreciate that sort of new system that Benteke is playing. And there is an acceptance that he's not the same player as he was anymore, as he was before. He's not going to get you those 20 goals a season. Um, and, and I think once people kind of realised that and accepted that and appreciated that he had a different role, they started to see what that role was. And we're talking about some of the sort of tweaks to the game uh, as we return from the coronavirus pandemic. One of them is five substitutes allowed instead of three. Now, Roy Hodgson, not known as a huge 
fan of substitutions looking at uh, fbref.com I can see that only Sean Dyche has made fewer subs in the Premier League this season he was given five to play with for the first time on the weekend how did he react to that how many did he make uh, he made three subs um, one at the, <laughs> the first one was in the 65th minute uh, Luka Milivojevic the captain however the last two were, were late on uh, in the game so it wasn't quite as if he uh as if he brought players on early on uh, and made the, the most of those subs. To be honest, that actually surprised me. I thought he would slightly change and go for uh, more subs because if you look at the way that Palace play, if you look at the squad that they've got, if you look at the starting eleven, it's it's more or less similar most weeks, every week. Um, it's an ageing squad with players who uh, have ageing legs and, you know, players who have had serious injuries as well. If you look at the defence, both Scott, you know, Scott Dan has, has done remarkably well to come back from that serious injury he suffered at Sellhurst when tackling Kevin De Bruyne. Um, but I was surprised that, that, that Hodgson only made three subs and only did so almost when forced to. Uh, I think like Luka Milivojevic looked like he was you know, a bit struggling with some kind of knock or not necessarily knock but you know just quite tired and and then I think James McArthur went off with about five minutes to go plus stoppage time but I think as time goes on Palace will probably start to make more subs but what Roy Hodgson would say and will probably say and has said is if you look at his bench there aren't really the options there for him to use you look at the likes of Max Meyer he doesn't fit the system you know he's kind of a I suppose deep-lying playmaker if you like and you know he he's small he's diminutive he's quick he's you know he's a player that likes to pass the ball around likes to run and dribble with the ball and you know he doesn't really fit that system that, that Roy Hodgson likes to play um, but as time goes on with the lack of depth strength in depth that Palace have I think even despite that, Roy Hodgson will probably start to make more subs. Got a young left back, Tyreek Mitchell. Um, you know, has Patrick Van Arnhol got got three lots of ninety minutes in his legs? Um, especially if he's Palace's primary attacking outlet down the left. You know, linking up with Wolf Zaha. Um, you know, Joel Ward as well. These aren't young players anymore. They're playing every week, week in, week out. So my suspicion is that as as the games start to come thick and fast, that will change. But obviously, for now, he isn't making use of all those subs. And Michael, just a, a last word on, on Palace. They're in ninth position as we record. They've got the same record in terms of results as Tottenham this season. They're two points ahead of Arsenal. But a little peculiar in the top half as well, in the sense that they've got a negative goal difference. They've actually scored the second fewest goals in the division as well. Only three more than Norwich, just 28 in 30 games. They've got Liverpool in midweek, uh, uh, tomorrow night as we record, and they have got quite a tough run in. Six teams uh, above them they've got to play and, and just two teams below them. Uh, what have you made of, of Palace and their season under Hodgson and, and how do you expect it to go from here? Yeah, I mean, they're in very good form. I mean, if you can call it form with that three-month break but they've you know it's not too long ago they were kind of looking over their shoulders and like you say now they're in the top half um I think they're a, a really good quite exciting team for the Premier League to have because they tend to be 
capable of getting results against bigger opponents. They haven't necessarily done that this season as much as in the, the last couple of seasons, but I think they're very well organised defensively, generally pretty good on the counter-attack. And yeah, they're, they're able to beat some of the big boys. So yeah, I always enjoy watching Palace. And I think of all the grounds I go to semi-regularly, probably the best atmosphere at Selhurst Park as well, albeit not for the rest of the season. But uh, yeah, I always enjoy having them in the Premier League. I just wonder, Matt, if you might be reporting tomorrow night on a Christian Benteke goal <laughs> against his old club, Liverpool. Um, that would be funny. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and great to hear all about Palace. No problems. Thanks for having me. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Next up, some big winners of the weekend were Brighton and Hove Albion. Now, they beat Arsenal uh, with that late winning goal from Neil Neil Mopai. And, Michael, is it fair to say that Brighton are becoming something of a bogey team for Arsenal? (laughs) Yeah, home and away in the league this year. Both 2-1, both goals from Mopai, late winners. Um, Yeah, I always think it's quite damaging for Arsenal when they lose to a side like Brighton. I mean, Arsenal have tended over the years not to be particularly good against the big sides. They've also tended to have problems against, you know, big physical sides that play long ball. But, I mean, Brighton are broadly playing the Arsenal way in terms of, you know, possession football, taking the games of the opposition. So when they lose home and away to a side who who plays like them, but with a significantly smaller budget, I think that's a, a pretty damning sign for Arsenal. Three seasons in the Premier League, three wins against Arsenal, two draws, and one defeat as well. And Mopai was the centre of attention, certainly for scoring the winning goal and also for a bit of handbags with Guendouzi after the final whistle. Uh, He is a really interesting player. He's got nine goals in 29 games. His first season at this level, previously two years at Brentford. Uh, The first one, I think it's fair to say, he needed to find his feet and and he wasn't considered to be uh, much of a superstar at second tier level until he certainly did find those feet and notched 25 league goals in the championship last season what have you made to his first season in the Premier League yeah I think he's done quite well I mean he's 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 quite a specific player I'd say in terms of his strengths his movement is very good his runs into the channels he's a kind of player that even if he's not providing a goal threat he's always quite lively um, I think his best game was probably that 3-0 win that Brighton had at home to Tottenham in uh, I think the latter days of Pochettino when he played up front with uh, with Connolly in kind of a 4-2-2-2 formation. So two players, uh, Moy and uh, Gross, floating behind him and Connolly. And, and just his movement into the channels was really good. The, the combination play with Connolly as well. There was a goal he scored against Wolves in a two-all draw just before Christmas that I thought was quite typical, just a ball into the left channel. He took it really early and surprised Rui Patricio with the finish. And it's interesting what you say about him kind of taking a while to adjust to the championship because I think another player you can kind of say that about and and indeed took a, a year to adjust to the Premier League was Jamie Vardy. And, and obviously we know that Vardy, after that period of adjustment, has, has become really prolific. So I kind of see Mopay in that broad kind of uh, style, if you like, for a centre forward and maybe someone who just needs to learn a little bit more about 
playing against top level centre backs because that's obviously completely new to him. But yeah, I've been impressed by him. I've I've maybe been a little bit disappointed by his goal return. I, I thought he could be a player who got you know, maybe 15, 16 goals in his first Premier League season because I think he's really talented, but maybe one for next season. I'm just so impressed at how he speaks English with barely a hint of a French accent, which, you know, is 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 is, is, is no mean feat. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to speak French without an English accent and it's very difficult to speak English without a French accent if you are a native French speaker. But I know that when he moved over to Brentford, he didn't speak any English and he, he did, he sort of learned it by watching movies with English subtitles, which is always a classic, uh, a classic story of language learning for, for footballers over the years and uh, it's paid off. I was very impressed with that post-match interview. <laughs> I like the idea that while everyone was listening to the quite inflammatory comments he was making I was just focusing on uh, on his accent but uh, yeah I mean look Brighton hadn't won in I think nine games before the lockdown they got the three points here a valuable three points in the battle against relegation I, I want to ask you about Graham Potter how much credit do you give him for how he managed this game and changes he made within it yeah, I mean, he used five subs. Arteta did as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was one of those games where we had 10 subs, which I do think does make the game slightly <laughs> disjointed, even if they're, um, you know, in the three windows, as, as they're called. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I think the change of formation proved crucial. They, they started with just Mopai up front on his own. They went to two up front. Like I say, in that Tottenham game, I think it was the best Brighton played all season, and that was with two up front. I thought the combination play for the for the goal was really neat, actually, between Connolly and Mopay. I think they worked really well together. And I think Potter's, you know, maybe the results haven't been as, as good as some of us expected from Potter. I think one thing that he has done is he's used subs very well. I mean, right from the first day, there was that 3-0 win at Watford where Andoni and Mopay came off the bench to score goals. There's been um, there was a three-all draw at West Ham that that stands out to me a game where Brighton were three-one down and and Potter brought on Shiloso for Montoya because he wanted to exploit Mikhail Antonio's lack of tracking because Antonio was completely exhausted and couldn't really defend and I think the two goals came from down that flank. Um, I remember there was a, a draw where Burnley as well. Uh, where they start with a with a back three, they really struggled when being pressed, and they switched to a back four and looked better off. And in his interview after the game, Sean Dyche was really complimentary of Potter and the way he changed things, and basically said he'd he'd struggled to uh, to sort that uh, issue out. And then the other game at Watford, which I was at down in Brighton, one all draw in February, I think. He made a couple of incredibly attacking substitutions. He brought on Mopé for Dan Byrne and Jakambash for Shiloso. So he basically took his two fullbacks off and brought on two attacking players. He ended up playing two midfielders at fullback. They really went for it and got the equaliser. I guess the issue here is I'm talking about three games where Potter did really well with his subs and they didn't win any of them. Um, mm. And that has been the issue. But they looked... At, I mean, that was a big win, wasn't it? I mean... Below them in the table, Watford drew the bottom four sides all lost. So Brighton do have a bit of a buffer now. Five points over 18th place Bournemouth through the last of the relegation uh, places. So, yeah, I've been really impressed by Potter. Maybe he's um, his first time in the Premier League, of course, as a manager. I think he's really bright. He's a really good tactician. And I do feel that with Brighton's squad and his tendency to make good changes, that he could be one of the managers who who benefits from having two extra subs. I think they're a club in a, in a fascinating position, sort of mid to long term. They, they, I've been tracking them since the championship days where they took they, they took a, a quite a patient approach to building a, a promotion team, which at, at championship level is rare. Teams tend to, to throw everything at it uh, in one go. But um, it feels 
feels like a club that's been run and managed in in a really really good way over the last decade or so with Tony Bloom uh, as the as the owner. Um, and it, it feels like even having joined the Premier League, they've done kind of all the right things to to develop and improve and evolve, making key appointments and, and big decisions like uh, changing manager, getting rid of Chris Hewton and, and bringing in Graham Potter. And their recruitment is fascinating. I mean, very creative. It's fair to say, and they've. They've got a really interesting group of players, not just at the club, but those out on loan as well. I can't wait to see what happens over the next few years, but it just shows how difficult it is. I mean, it's just my opinion, but I think they're doing things really well. I think they're doing things the right way. And yet they still find themselves very much in the short term, desperately needing results in order to to stay up and stay in the division. So uh, a really interesting side, Brighton, a, a team to keep an eye on, certainly having kicked off the well, project restart uh, with a great result against Arsenal. Uh, another team that was straight out the traps. Another team that maybe we don't necessarily associate with being straight out the traps. I certainly don't associate them with scoring three goals against a team with a defence as strong as Sheffield United. Newcastle United uh, got a really good win uh, on the weekend. And I wanted to ask you about it. Firstly, from a tactical perspective, Steve Bruce, who has really settled on a back five or had really settled on a back five for the majority of this season um, switched it up this weekend and it went well yeah the first 25 games of the season they only used uh, four man defence once which was away at Leicester and they lost 5-0 so uh, obviously didn't use that system again for a while um, until the end of March and since then since they used the four at the back they've had three games 0-0 1-0 3-0 so they're keeping clean sheets with this new system um, they seem to play it well defensively. I was also impressed by them going forward. I thought Amaron as the number 10 with two wide players worked really well. thought they stretched the play. They had lots of speed out wide. And uh, obviously they were held by Sheffield United going down to 10 men with, with John Egan being sent off. But uh, yeah, I thought Newcastle looked really good. And uh, obviously Newcastle well out of danger now. And I'd be surprised if they do go back to the, uh, the five-man defence for the rest of the campaign. I guess when you come up against Sheffield United, whose system itself... Is, is almost one of the most famous tactical systems in the Premier League this season uh, and the way that they play with their own three at the back system. So it was interesting to see Bruce not choose to, to match that uh, and go 4-2-3-1 uh, and continue with that good form uh, from pre-coronavirus. It was, there was a, a starring role for Matt Ritchie, uh, Michael, who in the the three at the back system doesn't necessarily have an obvious place in this side, but really did star uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a wide role on the weekend. Yeah, I mean, a player who I think got a lot of praise for his championship performances and, and I've I've never been that impressed by in the Premier League, I must say. I think at Bournemouth and then, and then with Newcastle when I've seen him, I think he's kind of struggled to impose himself on games. Obviously, he actually took a step down to the championship to be with to be with Newcastle. I mean, he's been playing as a wing back really when they've been uh, when they've been using the five man defence, which I think he does okay. I've been impressed by his kind of work rate and defensively he's okay. But um, yeah, he, he clearly considers himself a winger, and I think this was. Um, one of the best I've seen him in play really as a wing obviously scored a really good goal got the assist for that uh, Sam Maximan opener as well so yeah I I think he's one of the players that that suits this system and certainly they look really good having two proper wide players with with him and Sam Maximan down the flanks Joe Linton got his second goal of the season he benefited from some good well some good delivery from from wide areas he also kind of tripped over the ball when he was one on one in the first half uh, he is someone who has caught the headlines 
for perhaps underperformance uh, or, or, or potentially just from having such a hefty transfer fee attached to his name, which adds its own pressure. Uh, how bad has Joe Linton been this season? What, what, what do you make of his role within this Newcastle side? Yeah, it's tough to defend him, really. I think he's really struggled. Um, I think there were a lot of question marks about that fee from when he came from Hoffenheim. His scoring record wasn't really great. Uh, in the Bundesliga or really anywhere he's played. And I think there was a lot of pressure coming to Newcastle, especially being given that number nine shirt, which is so fabled at St. James's Park. I think if Newcastle knew that Andy Carroll was coming back, maybe they would have uh, kept that for him and and Joe Linton maybe wouldn't have got that shirt. Um, Yeah, he struggled. I I think his movement is good. I think he makes good runs into the channels. Um, And I think that works quite nicely with with Almiron, who's a player who wants movement ahead of him. Um, I thought the missy... He uh, suffered early on, kind of showed him, showed what he's all about, really. It was a really good run. But then it wasn't even just the finish that was bad. I thought it was just his body shape. There was a lack of composure. I think he wanted to play into the far corner, but almost felt like he didn't have enough time to really run around the ball properly and then completely snatched at the shot. So it was nice to see him get off the mark. He has worked hard. I think he can be useful, um, maybe in a tactical role. Uh, next season maybe playing out wide he's hard working he gets up and down I think his movement is good but uh, yeah with uh, with this takeover seemingly imminent you would expect a new centre forward to be uh, one of the first things that Newcastle go for I think it is probably fair and right to point out that there have been plenty of games this season in which Newcastle's system has not necessarily been designed to get the best out of uh, out of their number nine but uh, you know it, I was happy to see him, him finish that one off uh, another key man for Newcastle or just in terms of causing Sheffield United's defence problems was Alain Saint-Maxima. He scored the opening goal from my perspective and, you know, maybe I don't always look as closely into the tactical side of things and tactical discipline as someone like yourself, but certainly on the ball, with the ball at his feet and with space to move into, um, he always looks dangerous. He, He... if I had to list now who I thought were the best sort of dribblers of the ball in the Premier League, his name would pop up certainly in the top five, maybe the top three. Does Do the stats back that up, I guess, is what I'm wondering. Well, you're spot on with top three, Ali. He's uh, third place <laughs> in total dribbles. Can you guess who's dribbled more than him this season? Two players? Well, I think if it's per 90, you've, you've got Adama up there, surely. Um, yeah, possibly not much. in terms of total volume. I can't think of the the other one off the top of my head. Fill me in. Wilfred Zaha. Uh, uh, of course. Is, is, yeah, those two are actually quite a long way clear of the pack. Zaha's, this is attempted dribbles. He's attempted 226. Adoma Traore, 199. It's quite a big drop to Sam Maximan, who's on 136. But actually, Sam Maximan hasn't played that many games. He's only made 19 appearances because of uh, injuries. So yeah, I mean, he's a tremendously exciting player. Um, I think in his early weeks, maybe there was a little bit of a, a struggle for end product, but I think he's he's played with a bit more composure as as the season's gone on. And yeah, I, I just think he's a player who, who can suit either way that Newcastle might look to play in, in the future. He's obviously very good in counter-attacking situations. But I think his, his dribbling is, is possible in, in small spaces as well. I think it's he's got an incredible burst of acceleration. I mean, he's, he's certainly quick over long distances, but what I've been most impressed by is just 10 or 15 yards. He's really got a sudden sprint in him. So, yeah, I, I must say he's probably been the player I've enjoyed watching most in this uh, in this Premier League campaign. And still only 23 as well. He's got uh, room to improve. And Almiron as well, who who is an exciting attacking player who hasn't always found it easy, I should say, to impact games in the Premier League, but who looks to be finding his feet in English football as well. It'd be really exciting for the neutrals and for the Newcastle fans if we could get uh, 
Almiron and Sam Maximal clicking in the same team and complementing each other well. Just to finish off the pod, I want to ask you about Southampton. I think it's it's worth not getting carried away uh, about a team beating the, the division's worst team, but it was uh, you know it was a, a fairly comprehensive victory. I'm interested to know uh, about Hassan Hootel, who just signed an extension to his contract. It was received well by Southampton fans. Some stability with his with him in charge, although this season hasn't always gone swimmingly. Um, how did their game against Norwich play out tactically? Well, I thought it was interesting because it's the first time this season that Norwich had gone four four two. They played Dermot up front with Puki. Clearly, from the result, it didn't work particularly well. Okay, Dermot set up Puki for probably Norwich's best chance, but um, yeah, it was a, I think a demonstration of um, of how good Southampton are in that four four two system. Um, they played three at the back for the first few months of the campaign. It's been four four two pretty much solidly from November, and I think that's been a really major factor in helping to rejuvenate their campaign. I mean, it's easy to forget now that they were really in relegation danger for a lot of the season. Lost nine nil at home to. Leicester on that Friday night and things were looking really bleak but yeah the 4-4-2s work well they, they play not as a kind of traditional English 4-4-2 but with the wide players coming inside and that was pretty much how Norwich tried to play it as well with with Cantwell and Buendia moving inside but um, I thought they left themselves very open in midfield Norwich and uh, Southampton were able to exploit that on the counter. Yeah it felt like with Buendia and Campwell having been talked up at different points this season, actually their counterparts out wide for Southampton, Armstrong and Redmond played a key role uh, in this game. I-, I hadn't necessarily considered Armstrong to be a wide player, so it would make sense uh, to hear you say that that he does come inside and Redmond as well. Do they manage to get away with, you know, avoiding congestion? If you've got two wide men coming inside, you've got two up front and, and two in the centre of the park as well. Do they Do they manage to space things well as well? I think I do, yeah, because the forwards they use are always mobile. I mean, obviously Ings is always up there and, and usually Obafemi or um, or Long, who I think is all about runs into the channels. They get the width from the fullbacks. Um, and yeah, I, I've been impressed by both Armstrong and Redmond individually. I think sometimes they combine really well. There was a great goal they scored. Uh, I think the second away at Chelsea in a tuna win at, at Christmas where they linked up brilliantly. Um, I'd just like to see a little bit more end product from them. I mean, they've both got four goals this season, Armstrong and Redmond, and that means they're the joint second top goal scorers, obviously behind Ings. Redmond is a player who I always think is just about to explode into a really top class player. I know Pep Guardiola seems to feel the, the same, doesn't he, from that confrontation they had a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a work in progress for Southampton. But um it's it's been interesting to see how I think the players have retained faith in Hassan Hutel even during that difficult period. He's a good manager, quite an experienced manager when you look at how he did with Leipzig um, and the fact that he's been tied to a, a quite a long-term contract after a topsy-turvy season shows that there's some real faith in him there. So a good return to Premier League football for the Saints. They put 10 points between themselves and the relegation now uh, and the relegation zone now. So you'd certainly hope that uh, barring disaster, they will be in the Premier League next season. Hassan Hutel signing a new contract, as I said earlier. Do you see them as a team on the up? If I put you on the spot and said, right, if, if the season finished now, they're 14th, would you expect higher or lower or more of the same next season? I'd probably fancy them to move up. I think Aston Hoot was a good manager. They've got a young side, lots of good attacking players. I think it's it's about recruitment really, isn't it, for them to improve. They used to do that really, really well. You think of some of the players they brought in maybe five or six years ago. 
I think defensively, they probably need someone to base the defence around. Haven't been particularly committed with Bednarek, who's, who's probably been their main centre-back this year. I think he's made a few errors. And and when they've been good over the years, you know, whether it's been Fonte or Van Dijk or, or Lovren was very good for Southampton, they've had at least one really good centre-back. And uh, I think they probably lack that at the moment. But yeah, I'd be quite confident about Hasenhutl performing well. And uh, yeah, certainly of... Of the bottom half sides, they're, they're one I would fancy to get better next season. Well, thank you. I've worked you hard today. I, I love that we have uh, a, a, lo- a long leash on this podcast and we can we can mix it up week to week. This feels like something a bit different, something a bit new for the Zonal Marking podcast, but kind of like some some tapas, I would say. Just some small plates. <laughs> we started off with, with first impressions of, of post-coronavirus football. Uh, we've talked about Crystal Palace with Matt Woosnam, about Brighton as well after their win against Arsenal and Newcastle and Southampton starting the restart uh, in strong form too. So thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for listening to this Zonal Marking podcast. We'll be back again next week with more of the same topic TBC, but you can bet it will be an absolute banger. Uh, Make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic so that you can read everything that Michael is writing, everything that Matt Woosnam is writing about Crystal Palace and a whole host of other athletic writers who cover football and of course US sports as well. If, If you go to the athletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking you can get a subscription today with a 40% discount uh, which will see you pay £3 a month for a year's subscription to The Athletic so thanks for joining us this week hope you're enjoying the return of the Premier League and other major European football divisions join us again next week on the Zonal Marking podcast brought to you by The Athletic <laughs>